y'all, and welcome to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern, spooky, and ghosty. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween, everybody! And we, as always, would like to invite you to our Facebook page, Instagram. Our Halloween Facebook page. Absolutely. Our Halloween Instagram (laughs) and our Halloween Patreon. Leave us some likes, some Halloween comments. likes. All right, Josh, <laughs> and, and spooky five star reviews. Thank you. I'm your Carolina girl, Heather, and I'm your Halloween Florida man, Tony. I try to contain him, but it's not possible. Uh, not tonight. Tonight we celebrate All Hallows Eve. Now, more and more out in the wild, we notice that people are trying to replace it with innocuous harvest celebrations, which you know, honestly, I don't mind. Yeah. Or my favorite, there's a church back in Lexington that would do a hallelujah hoedown that I find slightly offensive. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of offended at that. What's odd to me is that is the notion of All Hallows Eve is that it's the night before All Saints Day, yeah. which is Catholic, yeah. but it is a feast day. And of course it goes back further than that. In Celtic pagan history, it's Samhain, mm-hmm. the night when the veil is thin and spirits roam the earth, and the costumes used to be used to protect one from being recognized by spirits. Yeah, because if you were seen without a costume, you may be accosted, attacked, mugged, who knows, politely pushed, <laughs> something like that. And there's plenty more to it, but I yeah. really just want to say it's not a satanic it's holiday. It's not. It's really not. It has nothing to do with Satanism. I think, if anything, it's Catholic. But beyond that, it's also a fun night that kids dress up and trick-or-treat. Which I am totally down for. Absolutely. Even though I am in my 40s, I would trick-or-treat if I could. I think adults should. You know, it's all part of the fun. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember watching in uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, if you want to see how they used to uh, celebrate in the neighborhood, it's like a riot. The children build a big bonfire in the middle of the road. It's almost scary. Anyway, there are some limits to our celebrations, whilst on a podcast. Indeed. We can't share chocolate or play parlor games. Or I could throw chocolate really hard, but it would just bounce off the laptop. Yeah, it'd be a waste of chocolate. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. Chocolate. Oh, God. Okay, we'll share chocolate with each other. Maybe you have some yourself. Okay, I'll try to talk over the rattling of his chocolate noise. You want a piece of chocolate? Absolutely. (laughs) Dark chocolate covered coffee caramel. I'll be up all night. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to eat a caramel right now because I'll never be able to talk, but I'm going to mm-hmm. take it. But we can gather around our virtual campfire we and can. share spine-tingling tales. We've collected some friends to help us out and share their spooky stories. We have Brad Lee of Pirates Royale mm-hmm. fame, who is just a great storyteller. Such a good guy. And he'll share some encounters he had in his college days. Mm-hmm. We have Emily Stardust, who you've met before, who guides ghost walks in Beaufort. Beaufort? Beaufort, North Carolina. One of of the sweetest people I've ever met. She's delightful, and she'll be sharing some of her walking tour stories Mm -hmm. and personal experiences. Indeed. We also have Bubba Graves, who has been sensitive to spirits since his childhood. And we have Matt McDowell, who is a semi-retired ghost investigator. Mm. And, of course, there's us. We have some. And now, gentle audience listeners, imagine yourself outside in a lovely wooded clearing. The wind whispers in the dark trees, an owl in the distance calls out. Bats skitter wildly overhead, a warm and inviting fire crackles. The scent of marshmallows mixes with that of the autumn leaves and pine needles. And seated around the fire are our storyteller friends who take turns sharing creepy anecdotes and thrilling stories. Let's listen in. Thank you so much for joining us uh, at the campfire. My name is is uh, Zelda, or as my social media influencing name, Stardust, on both TikTok and Instagram. I work at Beaufort Ghost Walk, and we do tours to weary travelers who are looking to hear some really good ghost stories. Uh, And the ghost story I have for you tonight is one of our local ghost stories, but I think I'm going to turn the mic over to Anne, who is my ghost persona. (laughs) Yes, Anne... She's a much better storyteller than I am, so I'll let Anne take over from here. <laughs> Give me one moment, I'll bring her out. <clears throat> well, I heard we wanted to have some stories. Sorry, my hostess, she's a bit awkward, so I suppose I'll take over from this point. <laughs> well, some of you may have heard of me. I am the one, the only Anne Bonnie, or at least that is who is presiding in this vessel at this very given time. Ooh. Now, the story we have for you comes from uh, one of our local stories here in Beaufort tonight. We have, you see, 
I guess you could say, this side of the coast, the Carolinas, especially the East Coast here in Beaufort, we've been involved in just about every single war this side of the New World. We've been involved in the Revolutionary War, we've been involved in the World War, and we've also been involved in um, the Tuscarora Native War as well as the Civil War. Now, assuming that we all know the South, the Deep South is where Beaufort is located, you might immediately jump to assumption and think that this town in Beaufort, North Carolina must have been a Confederate town. But you would be mistaken. <laughs> this town was actually a Union town for a majority of its lifetime during the Civil War. You see, during the standoff at Fort Macon, about 500 shots were fired, and the very much outnumbered Confederate soldiers decided to put up arms, surrender, and go home so they could be with their families. Wise choice, I dare say. <laughs> so, <laughs> very early on, this town would then turn its alliances from that of a Confederate town to that of a Union town. So much so in the early stages of the Civil War that if you found that your cause aligned more with the Union than the Confederacy, you could find that this was a town you could come sign up in the South to fight for the other side. And if you also had the unfortunate circumstance of being a slave during that time, this was also a town many could mark on their maps to seek freedom or safety. <laughs> so very interesting town during that time. Now, during that time, uh, there is a family in our town known as the Potter family. And the Potter family, they did not provide wizards, but they did provide. <laughs> they did indeed provide some of our most finest school teachers and female school teachers in town. We loved the Potter family for this reason. Now, Anne Potter was a little girl who was born to this family. Uh, she, they are about a middle class family. I could show you the home if you ever decide to visit. But they're a middle class family, which means Anne Potter, she's allowed to make friends with just about anyone she wants to in the town. She's not too high for anyone. And one of Anne's very best friends was actually a young poor boy who worked down at the docks. His name was Jeffrey. Now, Jeffrey and Anne, they were the best of friends. They grew up and did everything together. They used to ride the ponies through the town. They used to climb trees together. He'd show her a bug, she'd scream, all that sort of nonsense that boys <laughs> like to do to pick on little girls. <laughs> now, Anne, she grew up wanting to be a teacher, just like the rest of her family. That was her goal in life, and she did so. So much so that she dedicated special time to spend with her friend Jeffrey to teach him how to read and how to write. This would prove to be quite useful later on. You see, because as the two, these two did grow and develop and mature, Anne would grow from an awkward little girl to a beautiful young woman here in the town. And Jeffrey, likewise, would go from a scrawny lad to a rather strapping young sailor boy working down at the docks. <laughs> so these two would then go from childhood friends to childhood sweethearts. This is a love story. <laughs> Now, Anne and Jeffrey, they were very much in love. However, during the Civil War time, Jeffrey decides that he needs to make a name for himself to prove that he's worthy to ask Anne's hand in marriage. So in doing so, he decides he's going to prove himself by joining the Civil War and fighting for the uh, Union Army here in Beaufort. Now, he goes off to war and he promises that he's going to write her every single day. And it's thanks to Anne's dedication in childhood that they were able to write each other letters back and forth, back and forth. They burned up the poor postman in Beaufort. He was constantly running these letters back and forth. <laughs> However, there comes a time when there is a chill in the air here in Beaufort. You see the time when the leaves fall off the trees and... Uh, you see, even though it's quite warm here during the winter, or the summertime <laughs> here in the beach area, it does get quite cold during the winter time still. It's during this time that that chill would come in the air that those letters would stop to uh, become more infrequent, I should say. They stopped coming altogether, in fact. The trickle would come to a stop. So much so, in fact, that Anne would reserve herself to sitting on her front porch and she'd look out to the postman who used to constantly be delivering those letters and who would do nothing but give her a shrug. He had nothing to give her anymore. Now, Anne, she was adamant that perhaps she would still see Geoffrey again. Perhaps eventually those letters would start coming and she would reserve herself to waiting on the porch religiously so. There comes a time in the middle of the night where Anne is sitting there wrapped up tightly in her shawl starting to get a bit chilly so she decides to go inside but as she's about to walk in those doors she can hear what sounds like hoofbeats off the cobblestone street 
this is an odd time for horses to become running into town. So she comes to the edge of the porch and she grips the railing. Her knuckles turn white as she sees this great black steed approach. Now she recognizes this great black steed to be that of Jeffrey's. And sure enough, as the rider would come into the lamppost light and the flames would illuminate his face, she would see it was Jeffrey. Ooh. Now, Anne, she comes running down the porch. Jeffrey approaches on his horse. He dismounts and these two collide into each other and they embrace each other very tightly and they share an intimate moment right there in front of the home. They hold each other tightly and it's at this point Anne would pull away and she'd put her hands on his face and she would say, Jeffrey, you're so cold. You're as cold as clay. Come inside. Let me make you some tea. And Anne would lead him inside. She'd sit him down in the parlor. She would take off her shawl, wrap it around his shoulders and go to make him some tea. Now, the entire time Anne is trying to make small talk with Jeffrey, ask him where he's been, how he's been doing. Jeffrey, she finds, is much more silent than he used to be. In fact, he's reluctant to speak at all. She perhaps wonders if maybe he's seen some things. Perhaps war has changed him a bit. Either way, the one thing that doesn't change is Anne's love for him. In fact, she comes back around, she goes to bring him the tea in the parlor, and suddenly he doesn't speak, but he shoots up from his seat. And he gives her this look, and then he motions to her. He motions to her as if to say, come, follow me. Anne would then take his hand, and he would lead her back outside into the cold night air, right up to her steed. He would pick her up by the waist, place her atop the great black steed, and he himself would get atop it as well in front of her. Anne would then hold on to him tightly, and suddenly he would spur his horse forward, and these two would go for a long midnight ride. They would go through the streets of Beaufort under light of moon, a romantic ride past the docks here in Beaufort, past the sea. And in that moment, even though it's cold, Anne's holding him very tightly, and in that moment, everything is good. Everything is as it should be. Everything is perfect, as she's so close to the love of her life. However, as we know, all good things must come to an end, and so came to be with this midnight ride. So there comes a point in the night where Geoffrey does bring Anne back round to the very edge of town, and he would then place her back down on the cobblestone, and he would say the only words that he would utter to her that night. He would say, not yet, but soon. Not yet, but soon. Those would be the only words he would leave her with, and with that, he would ride off into the night. Now, Anne, she would think that perhaps this meant that he would be back for her. He would return. He always promised that when he came back from the war, they would be forever united. So, Anne walks back up to her home. She goes back upstairs and decides to try to get some shut-eye, dreaming of this romantic moonlit ride she just had with the love of her life. However, the next morning, she would wake and find two figures standing at the foot of her bed. These two figures being that of her parents. The look on their faces, mates, is only something I can describe to you as people who do not have very good news to share. Um. They would look at her and they would say, Anne, we've just received word that Jeffrey's body has been delivered to the docks of Beaufort. And Anne would look at them and she would say, No, this cannot be. I saw him but last night. You went for a ride together. This is impossible. They've got the wrong man. They would say, Anne, look, we've got the letter right here. It says... This is Jeffrey. Now, Anne would dispute this, but her parents would say, Listen, if you are so convinced that they have the wrong man, come with us down to the Methodist Church, which stands still in Beaufort to this day. I can show it to you if you ever come to visit. And we will go to identify the body with Jeffrey's parents. So the family, they set off and they make their way to the church. And as they're walking there, the entire time, Anne is very much convinced it must be the wrong man. There's some sort of confusion. She saw him, but night she held him in her arms by the time they make it to the methodist church the undertaker is now prying open the nails that wooden coffin and when the nails would fall to the floor and that wooden lid would be lifted the entire family jeffrey and Anne's and Anne herself would cover their mouths and they would gasp because laying in that coffin there was in fact jeffrey but what was the most chilling fact of all is around his shoulders there remained that shawl that Anne had placed there the night before you see, Anne Shaw is still right there around her shoulders. Ooh. Now, those words, not yet but soon, they would prove to be quite significant in about four months' time. Because, you see, four months later, Anne would be teaching a class. And one of the students would come to her and they'd say, Anne, I don't feel too well. And they'd, she'd feel their forehead and she would find that they were burning up with a fever by the middle of the week. The entire class would be consumed with this fever. And by the end of it, her herself would succumb to the fever known as yellow fever, which almost wiped Beaufort out in its entirety. Ooh. Now, 
We quarantined Anne with her students in one of our very rooms in the church. And it was in that room that they all were all quarantined together where they all died together, where they were then all buried together in a mass grave. So those words, not yet, but soon, perhaps those were Geoffrey's words of letting her know that they would be reunited, just not in this lifetime. Ooh. Yeah, that's <laughs> So, mates, there was a time during... England, of course, during the reign of King Queen Anne, when Queen Anne was on the throne. And during this time, it was a great time to be pirate. Anne Street is one of the streets here in Beaufort, actually, that gets name for Queen Anne and our love for her. See, everyone loved Queen Anne on the throne, because when she was on the throne, her slogan was, make the entire world British. When she saw what us pirates could do for her, she was the one that then hired us pirates under the guise of privateers to go around, loop, pillage, and raid any ship that was not an enemy, or that was, excuse me, <laughs> that was an enemy to the crown, which, spoiler alert, that was just about everyone. <laughs> Good time to be a pirate, mates, indeed. However, Queen Anne did what most of you will do at least once in your lifetime, and Queen Anne died. Now, when Queen Anne died, she had no living heirs to take the throne, so the only person who could take the throne in lieu of her having no heirs was that of her cousin, King George. And we did not like King George, but not because King George hailed from Germany and barely spoke a lick of English. We didn't like King George because he didn't like us pirates. You see, his slogan while on the throne of England was make peace with the entire world. Very different from Queen Anne. Now, he was the one that then labelled us criminals, had it to where you could then headhunt us and bring us back uh, and hang us by the neck until dead. That was when things changed for us pirates, you see. Now, many of us pirates, we are left to make but two decisions. We could either continue what we were doing at the expense of getting captured and hung by the neck until dead, as me and my crew did, or you could choose to take up a more good upstanding occupation and receive that lovely letter of Mark giving you mercy. Oh, now, <laughs> one of the most popular choices that we would take if we chose the latter to turn over a new leaf was that of what you might call a glorified ferryman. You see, I understand you people in this day and age have what you call uh, Uber. Uber! That's the word! Like that, but no background checks. <laughs> so you see, us pirates, we were being hired to use our very large vessels and bring people over from areas of Europe, areas of England, and have them settle this side of the coast, the colonies, and the New World. Now, during this time, many of us pirates, we had no ill will or bad intent, but it's during this time, mates, that there was once a particular group of pirates who once did something so awful and so heinous that even they knew that on the coast of North Carolina, where they liked pirates and accepted pirates, that they would not be allowed to enter should they know, found out what they had done, you see. Now, for those who've ever been to Newburn, you might have noticed that there is this crest associated with Newburn. There is the colours upon the crest. There's the bear, in fact. And this is because Newburn has a lot of German influence. The people who came from Newburn were people known as the Palantines. And they were being uh, coming over here, colonising the area, hired to come over here specifically from their king. Imagine you this for a moment. Put yourselves in the shoes of the Palantines. Imagine to yourself that you are very poor. Your country is in the midst of a very heated war, and you are struggling to feed your families. But imagine this, you suddenly receive this very fancy letter on your doorstep, wax sealed in fact, and it is from your king. This letter states, I, your king, am willing to pay you a lump sum of gold, I'm willing to pay your way over across the sea, and I'm going to give you a plot of land in the new world. For many of these Palantines, it was a very easy decision for them to make, to move over and go to the new world and start a new life for themselves. Now, many of these poor Palantines also were not thinking in regards to the people who were bringing them over or their backgrounds. Now, once again, I'll remind you, many of the time, us pirates had no ill will or bad intentions, but this one group of pirates, they did. You see, it's during this time that the Palantines are boarding this specific pirate ship, and these pirates, they hear upon their person jingling in many of their pockets. They assume that they must be full of gold inside their pockets that they carry. Now, as a former pirate myself, I can tell you greed is a very hard sin to shake off, and old habits, they do die hard. So these pirates would come up with a rather nasty plan, but the first part of the plan did not take place until they started seeing goals circle overhead. 
Now, mates, when you're out to sea and you see seagulls circle overhead your ship, uh, you know that you're roughly about a day away from land. So these pirates go to the Palantines and they say, Ah, dear friends, guess what? We have extra wine, we have extra mead, we have extra rations. Why not have a party? Why not have a celebration? And these people, being of European and German descent, well, it did not take them much convincing to have a drink and partake. <laughs> so these people, they eat and they eat and they eat and they drink and they drink and they drink until their minds are relaxed, their bellies are full. And it's at this point, mates, the pirates will go to them a second time and they will say, Ah, oh, dear friends, guess what? It looks like it's getting rather late. The sun is sinking. Why not go below deck? Get some shut eye and in the morning we will wake you and we'll help carry your things off the deck of the ship and you'll be in your new home in the new world. So these Palantines, they start filing below deck one by one. Man, woman and child. The mothers tucking in their children in their cots one last time. Unbeknownst to them that as soon as they all fell asleep, those pirates too, they would start sneaking and creeping below deck one by one. And these pirate priests, they would sneak up beside the sleeping palantines, and with one hand, they would place it above the mouth of the palantine, and with the other, they would take the blade of their knife, and they would slice it across their throats, ear to ear, leaving them to make a terrible, ghastly, choking and gargling sound on their own blood. They are choking, and they are dying very slowly. And it was a terrible sight, terrible sound as well. And they did this with no discrimination. Man, woman, and child were not spared their hand. Once they had executed all the Palantines, they then started going through their things, taking forth the gold, as much as they could fit all of them in their pockets, shoving it as full as they could. It's at this point, mates, that the captain then turns to the crew when they're finished pillaging, and he says, go wait for me in the Johnny boat, mates, the rowboats. I've got some business to attend to. For as many of you know, to commit a perfect crime, you must the evidence. So the captain, he goes around himself and he finds all these oil lamps he can find. And he spills the oil all across the deck of this ship. And he also finds anything flammable he can find. Any types of alcohol that can burn. And he would spill it all across the deck of the ship. And once he is satisfied with how saturated it is, he has one foot in the rowboat and the other on the deck of the ship. And then he takes one of his own oil lamps and he would smash it across the deck of that ship. Glass would shatter and flames would soon spread as he lowered himself in the water with his crew and they would begin to row away. And these men were quite pleased with themselves because as they looked back, they would see that that ship was taking flame quite nicely. It was being consumed by the fire and by morning, no sign of their sins would be shown on this island of Ocracoke, nothing but wreckage. And they would be able to be in North Carolina's free men. However, as they're rowing away, pleased with themselves, the flames would start spreading even more across the ship, and they would start, you see, traveling up the mast, which holds the sails, burning through the rope. Now, when the sails broke free, you can call it God, you can call it karma, or you can call it the wrath of those palantines who've just been so brutally executed. Either way, whatever you believe it was, suddenly a wind would pick up. And this wind would send this large flaming ship right towards these pirates and their little robots. The captain, he would turn and he would see this ship coming towards them and he would shout, Row! Row! Row for your lives! And these men, they would row as hard and as fast as they could. But no matter how hard and how fast they do row, this ship is coming right towards them. They would keep trying and even still the ship would come steady towards them until the keel of that great ship was right there at their little rowboats, leaving them but one choice. Now, many of these men, they would just jump overboard, attempting to swim to shore, forgetting that their pockets are very full with gold. And they sunk to the bottom with their greed. However, two of the men, they were smart enough, the captain and the first mate, and they would swim ashore, swearing not to tell another living soul what they had done. The next morning, nothing but wreckage would show up on that ship. Or show up on the shores, excuse me. <laughs> nothing but wreckage would show up on the shores of Ocracoke. Now, for a while, they kept that promise, but as many of you might know, there came a time when Blackbeard himself threw a party on Ocracoke, and he invited all of his pirate friends, and these men, they told us that story, and they said, uh, you know, it's a true story, Anne, you can't tell another living soul, and I said, I promise I won't tell another living soul. It's how they said it that made me believe it, but what's even more haunting is this, this is a ghost story, so really it wasn't the end of the wreckage that just washed ashore of Ocracoke. You see, to this day, if you find yourself venturing Ocracoke Island, 
uh, three times during the night on the first full moon, you are going to see an orange flare on the horizon. And out of it, there will sail a great flaming ship sailing in and sailing out. Some even attest to hearing that the goggling and the choking of the palatines accompanying it with. Now, we once had a woman tell us that she was searching for the great flaming ship of Broker Cook and she swore not to see it. However, later on in the evening, she did disclose to us that she was standing facing inland. Uh, As a pirate mate, you are not going to likely see a large flaming ship sailing inland. You are going to want to stand facing ocean side. So, mates, a word of advice to you is this. Make sure if you go in search of the great flaming ship of Okrakoke, you are indeed standing facing ocean side. <laughs> so, Anne, I have a question. Yes. Okay, so you realize that your name is Anne. In your first story, you spoke of a young girl named Anne. And at the beginning of this story, you spoke of Queen Anne. There is a lot of Anne's in tea. It's quite the popular name, you see. <laughs> I like to think they're all named after me, but it's simply not true. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bubba Graves, practicing druid and helper of people that seem to encounter things that are uh, not explained by traditional means, so to speak. <laughs> that is a nice, nice mutism. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> okay, so... We're not going to uh, throw you into... We'll start kind of towards the beginning of when I first started encountering people that needed assistance. Yeah. Because this is probably one of, one of the things that stands out the most to me as far as things that I've experienced throughout my history of the uh, paranormal, if you will. So at the time, I was still training under my mentor, and we had a mutual friend that will say that they had several roommates, because, you know, I do live in a college town, That and it's not uncommon here for, you know, four or five different people to go in together and rent a house, okay? So, yeah, yeah. So, to the unsuspecting person, you know, the, the house that they had rented was something, you know, that was built probably in the 60s, you know, very common house style, and we get kind of in passing, talking to one of the, you know, this mutual friend that we had, that there was some very not nice things happening in their house. <laughs> right. You know, so... Are you there to elaborate, or you just want to leave it at that? I, I will I will work my way into that. Okay, okay. fair enough. Yeah, because it's, it, it's a lot. Ooh. So we, you know, we say, okay, well, you know, we, we'll schedule a weekend, and we'll come up and just kind of see what's going on. And so we get to this house... It's like, you know, mid-afternoon on a Saturday. And, you know, everybody's just kind of hanging out, you know, as they do in, in, in college houses, you know, just kind of hanging out on the porch or whatever. And we sit down and we start talking to these kids. They, at first, were kind of nonchalant about it. But the more they talked about what was going on, you could tell that they were starting to get more and more apprehensive about talking about things. Yeah. Because it started out as, oh, yeah, you know, well... You know, the normal stuff like you would expect to hear. I put my keys down and looked and looked and looked, turned the house upside down, and they were on the table beside the door where I always put them. <laughs> you know, but they weren't there when they first looked. You know, just, just really strange things. Gotcha. And as they get to explaining more and more things, I decide that the best thing to do is to just go in the house and get people to show us where they've had things happen. Of course. Yeah, so, you know, we get, you know, the, the usual kind of, you know, we hear knocking coming from here, or we get smells coming from from the living room. Pretty pretty run-of-the-mill things for the most part. So me and my mentor were like, you know, maybe this could just stand for a for a generic house cleansing, you know, something that's pretty straightforward. Until we get to talking to some of the people that, for, for lack of a better term, we'll call them the, the more antisocial types, you know, the ones that don't really get out much. Right. And, <laughs> and you know, because every, 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 you know, living situation in, in a college town, you, you've got those kids, you know. Oh, absolutely. So as we're talking to them, we find out that, one night when it was, you know, inclement weather here in Boone, they decided the best thing to do would be to experiment with trying to scare each other, you know. As kids, as kids do. Right. Yeah. So they did not physically possess a Ouija board, but they made one. Oh. 
Okay, so yeah, you know they all the good ghost stories or like the ghost stories gone wrong start. Yeah. So we had a Ouija board made out of cardboard and no pizza box. <laughs> uh, pretty much, I mean, there there's consisted of uh, a poster board and a shot glass. Wow. Okay. okay. So so we're like, okay, explain to us exactly what you did and how you did it. So you know they were showing us, you know, this is this was their setup and. They lit some candles, you know, to set the to set the mood, and then they just started asking questions. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's pretty pretty straightforward. And I said, uh, well, did you get any responses? And they said, yes, we did. You know, so I started writing down the stuff that they were talking about, the kind of responses they were getting, because they weren't like normal responses that people would expect to get. Like these kids were getting some very strange strange things as far as the responses you know they were getting things that that they were saying that they were trying to pronounce but a lot of it was coming across and like some of it was latin oh wow yeah some of the stuff that they were getting uh from what me and my colleague could gather may have been a bit on the on the gaelic side of things oh yeah yes (laughs) so yeah so some very very strange spellings of stuff so we talked a little more, and that's when these people that were a little apprehensive before really started to explain to us that, well, the other night I was doing the dishes, and, you know, they've got a window right above their sink, like most of the older houses do, and it, and it was nighttime. And they said that they had this really uneasy feeling that somebody was watching them. And they happened to look up at the window at their reflection and the reflection was smiling at them. Oh, you know, very unnerving kind of smile. Yeah. Uh, the way they described it, they said that it was the type of smile that was not natural. Oh, like a Cheshire smile. Yes, yes. And then that's when things really started to get weird in the house, more so than it had been. So we're starting to get people that are having their hair pulled. One one of the kids, I mean, vehemently swore that they were being woken up at night with their covers on their bed pulled down tight around them, oh. and they couldn't move. So just lots of lots of nasty things. So my my mentor said, "Well, this escalates things to a to a different kind of, of entity because it's physically putting hands on people." Yeah and being kind of malicious. So what we had determined was that the best course of, of action at this point would be to, to conduct a, uh, a cleansing ritual of the house and then to take said improvised Ouija board <laughs> and pro- and properly dispose of it. So our, yeah. plan, our plan was to take it to a crossroads and bury it in the corner. So after we did this, took the Ouija board out of the house. Everything was fine for three or four weeks. Everybody said, oh, everything's feeling great. Everything's so much better. And then probably on the, yeah, it was about four weeks in. So at this point, we're getting close to Halloween. Okay. For people that practice different, you know, pagan faiths, you know, that time of year is kind of, kind of sacred. You know, that's the thinning of the veil. You know, that's when you celebrate the harvest, you know, and all that stuff. All Hallows and Samhain and all those good ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so if things are going to come through, that's when they come through to communicate. And we get a call. Well, I got I got a call from my mentor, and this is probably 11 o'clock at night. And she says, we need to go up there now. I, I said, okay. And she said, I'll explain on the way. So we get up, she comes and picks me up, we're heading to this house, and she said that they were all in the living room, you know, getting ready for, you know, trick-or-treaters to come around, because where this house was, was kind of in the neighborhood, you know, so it's not uncommon for kids to come through and, and all that stuff, so, and she said they were getting ready, and they said that a glass that was sitting next to the sink in the kitchen essentially launched itself through the kitchen out into the living room against a wall. Wow. Yeah, so we're talking something extremely violent. We then commence going through the house again. 
same cleansing ritual because you know sometimes it takes more than more than one go round. That's when I see something that to this day I can't explain what I saw. I don't know exactly what to call it, but it was absolutely terrifying. I'm going around the outside of the house while my mentor is doing the inside of the house. You know, putting down black salt and, and just doing the whole the whole thing. At the edge of the... So where this house is at, there's like a wooded area out kind of adjacent to the house. And in the little bit of light that we had available, I uh, look and make out a figure standing at the edge of the woods that looked human at first <laughs> until it started moving. And I realized that its hands were down past its knees. Oh. And that it was moving almost like it was stuck in mud. Like it was, it was a really, really strange movement about it. Yeah. Oh. And when it looks up to where I can start to make out some features, what I see is something that I can only describe as the top half of a bird's skull with just this ick hanging from underneath it. Okay. <laughs> Almost on the verge of being tentacle-like. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Somehow that is both vague and yet very specific. Like, I totally get Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, like I said, it was very, very strange. So, the first thing I do is is put up a, put up a ward around myself and, you know, basically tell it that it's not welcome. And will never be welcome. This is this is not a place for it to live. And so I go and explain to my mentor what was going on, and she then explains to me that what this is is something that was a, never a human, but has never actually had a form, and it has taken the form of what these people have put into it. Oh. So basically, they were creating this thing out of their own fear. Wow. That was, uh, we did end up doing another type of ritual that, you know, involves uh, a binding spell and removing it from the grounds because she so told me this is not something that you can just get rid of. This is a thing that will never not exist. You just have to relocate it. Mm. Yeah. So that was one of the first real deal creep me out moments I ever experienced in the in the paranormal. I would say so. That was pretty creepy. Yeah, that's that's pretty damn creepy. There's a place that's uh, kind of like right in between Troutman and Mooresville. Uh, it used to be an old farm. The family that owned the farm was the Jacobs family, and this little pond is uh they just call it Jacobs Pond. All the locals do. And there was three different incidents that are supposed to have happened at that pond, two of which I've actually been able to verify by going back and looking at old microfish of the newspapers, if, um, you know, you're old enough to know what microfish was. But uh, the two that I've been able to verify, there was, uh, this one is kind of morbid, but there was a man who, they don't know why he did it, but he bound his 17, 18-month-old kid and threw her into the pond, tied up his wife, threw her into the pond, then swallowed a box of rat poison and walked into the pond himself. Wow. Uh, that one I was actually able to verify. The uh, second one was they found a man laying beside the pond who had been shot in the back of the head execution style. And both of those I've been able to verify. And the third story goes that there was another young kid that had drowned in the pond, but I was never able to find anything on that. Uh, however, we were able to find evidence through doing ghost hunts at this pond in all three spots of that pond where these incidents were supposed to happen. Uh, we found actual evidence of hauntings while we were there doing ghost hunts around that pond. Ooh. The... Um, first one where the man uh, murdered his family and then walked into the pond himself. Uh, I sent you guys those pictures here a while back. Those pictures, or that one picture was taken right where that incident was supposed to have happened. Oh, wow. And we had been trying to provoke the spirit and all of a sudden, if you know my stage partner from the fair, it was him and his wife who were with us. She just got that feeling like something was staring at her. 
so she turned the camera around and snapped those pictures and that's where we got the one that i sent you guys uh the second one where the the man was found shot execution style you can see actually if you go down there at the pond and just set up at night you can actually see shadow figures walking through that area and if you go down there you can actually feel them brush up against you uh, to the point that me and my brother were trying to provoke them one night to get some activity and my brother and I were both shoved to the ground we were the only two at the pond so you can put two and two together on that one uh, in that same area we also get cold spots uh, you can actually take the air temperature readings and you'll get cold spots that are like 40 degrees cooler than the ambient air wow. in those areas. So that's like a blast of chill right there. Oh yeah, it is. And it was literally that much colder. Wow. And the third area where the other kid was supposed to have drowned up at the upper end of the pond, an ex-girlfriend of mine was with us for a ghost hunt there that one night. And when we were trying to talk to the spirit, and we were trying to take EVPs and all of that. Uh, she felt like her hand just turned cold, like something grabbed her hand. Ooh. And we took the um, temperature gun and we're checking the rest of her body and then her hand going down her arm. And her hand was uh, literally about 20 degrees colder than the rest of her body. And so we started trying to talk to it, and later on, when we went back and listened to the EVPs, we could actually hear a child's voice saying, help me, mommy, help me. Ah, that's so nice and creepy. That's the story I, yeah, that's the story I was never able to actually find any evidence that it happened, but on the same token, that haunting happened right where that was supposed to have happened, so... To say the pond has some activity would be an understatement. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And where did you say this pond was located? Uh, it's a place, it's uh, like right in between Troutman and Mooresville. Oswald Amity Road is the road it's off of. It's funny, when I was, when I was a child and when I was in my 20s, I had... I don't want to call it an ability. It it makes it sound like I'm special. Uh, but for some reason, uh, I I experienced quite a large handful of times when I actually uh, actually saw, heard, or had contact with spirit forces in another realm, 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 realm. <laughs> And um, it seems to have faded away when I was in my mid-30s. I just turned 60, so, so 25 years. But two years ago, I was visiting my friend Pixie's house in Virginia. She lives near the Virginia Ren Fair. And uh, she has a beautiful old house that dates back to the 1830s. Mm. Um, They've heard and seen things there. I was the last one up one night. I was in the kitchen. I was getting myself one final drink for the evening. And I saw a suspended glowing orb. It was the first time I'd ever I'd seen that since, you know, 25 years or so. Yeah. So that kind of heartened me. It, 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 it made me happy to, to see that. And it was accompanied by the smell of bacon, which, which other people in the house have also experienced. When there was no bacon that was made, there was no bacon lingering in the air. It, it just, and it was always around the kitchen area. And uh, so that was like the last time but the first time in a couple of decades yeah. that I experienced that. But when I was younger, in my 20s especially, I acquired some pretty cool stories, and I'm going to share with you one of my very favorites. Awesome. Excellent. So going back to uh, college, my, uh, my hometown was Salisbury, Maryland. And when I graduated in 80, I attended 
Salisbury State College. It's now Salisbury University. In fact, it turned uh, it turned into Salisbury State University the year after I graduated. So my wow. Defense, I was the last year that had Salisbury State College on on their diplomas. They said that for a fee, they would issue me one that came from the university. I asked if it made any difference in the in the big scheme of things. They said no. <laughs> so mine says Salisbury State College. I was an art major. Uh, my area of concentration was three dimensional design. And I was in one of the sculpture studios that was in the basement of Holloway Hall. Holloway Hall is the oldest building on the campus. It was built at the turn of the century. Uh, it used to house all the classes. It used to house all of the dorms on, on the upper floors and, and the theater um, and music complex. The whole shebang was, was there. And... Um, when I went, it was an admin building, largely. The theater was there. Lots of faculty offices. Um, reception rooms. Because it had the beautiful rooms. It had the beautiful Edwardian-era rooms with high ceilings and the big balustrade windows. It was gorgeous. And they stuck the art department down in the basement. Because, oh, of course. You know, we were art majors and we didn't deserve any better. <laughs> so I was in this one room. That was one of my favorite rooms there, honestly. It was in the basement. The only way to get into this room was through three, uh, through uh, two huge, heavy fire doors. So there was no way to sneak in and out. Yeah, especially not past fire doors. Those things are heavy for a reason. <laughs> yes. You open them, you hear the clunk, clunk. Yep. Yep. There's no quiet way about it. So the groaning doors. Yes, yes. I. Uh, it was after midnight. I did a lot of my best work after midnight. Who uh, doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> yes. At this, at this time, I was neither drunk nor stoned. Um, <laughs> other times. I was, but not at this time. <laughs> if anything, I was wired on coffee because uh, I had had a, a uh, studio uh, class, I think uh, it was either drawing or painting. Uh, that was most of that evening. And then me and my friends went to a local pizza parlor and loaded up on the pizza and coffee and pictures of sangria. And... <laughs> Um, I think the only thing, the only thing I smoked that night was one cigarette. <laughs> so, wow, um, yeah. so I was still uh, not only sober, I was very wired. Oh, and yeah. I went over to Holloway Hall down to the sculpture studio because I was working on uh, uh, something in the terracotta. I think they were models of human hands, and. Um, I pulled my tools out, uncovered the terracotta, and I started working. Now, I had checked to see if anybody was there. There was no one in this room. None. Nobody. Nada. I was the only one in there. And the two fire doors were closed. So I'm working, working, working. I got to a point where I was using a, uh, an artist loop. If you ever sculpted in clay, it's just a loop on the end of a handle. And I was using a needle. This needle right here. Um, it's a unique needle in that I made it myself when I was in high school. Oh, wow. So there's no other needle that looks like this. Um, so I was going back and forth between the needle. I would work with the needle, set it down, start using the loop. Set it down, go back to the needle. Set it down, go back to the loop. Set it down. Where's the needle? Hmm. I had just set it down. I didn't hear it fall on the floor. You know, I, I do the thing where you look all around your feet, you look all around the sculpture, 
Where is it? I had just methodically picked it up and placed it in the same place. Uh, I don't know. 40, 50 times. <laughs> it's not there. And uh, Now, I had heard stories from other students and from the staff there about encounters they had had with two, maybe three ghosts. There were two famous ghosts. One was the matron who lived on the third floor, and it was her job to keep all of the female students safe at night from the male students. Yeah. Yes. And and she plays into another story. I met up with the other ghost. Now, nobody seemed to really know his story, but everyone knew it was a guy. Don't know why. <laughs> um, so, I'll call him him. Okay. <laughs> so, I can't find the needle. <clears throat> And I'm looking all over the place. And then the hair on the back of my neck, back when I had the hair on the back of my neck, <laughs> and I straightened up in my seat. And I did the thing where you, you, you're perfectly still, as if making yourself still makes you invisible to <laughs> malevolent. Uh, and I moved my eyes first to the side, and then my head followed, and I slowly turned around and looked directly behind me. Up on the wall, on a bulletin board, my needle was stuck in the bulletin board. Wow. <laughs> I kid you not. So, I looked around the room, and I got up, and I walked for what seemed like 20 feet. It was like four feet. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at the needle, I examined it, it was my needle, no other needle looked like that needle. And I immediately started this dialogue. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's that's funny. That's funny. Yup, you got me. Well, heard a lot about you. Uh, uh, I guess this is us talking for the first time. Yep. I pulled the needle out and I walked back to my my seat. I said, "Yeah." So I guess this is gonna be a thing now because I'm down here a lot. And I've got to get my degree, so I'm going to be down here. I've got a few more years of this. Um, I'm also taking photography in the dark rooms or next door, so I, I'm in there too. But you, you probably already know this. Um, um, so, hey, I appreciate this time that we've had. And your little joke is funny as fuck. It really is. <laughs> I'm going to start packing up. And I'm packing up. And I'm keeping up the conversation as if that would ward off something horrible and dreadful happening to me. Like I, I'm some some amazing ace diplomat. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm going to... Do you want me to leave the lights? No, you don't care about the lights, do you? I shut the lights off, and I, 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 I walked over to the big steel, and and terrazzo steps, and I, I thought I'm going to be dignified. I don't want the ghost to think I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm weak. <laughs> Again, if it's someone from another plane of existence. I don't think my relative strength would really matter. (laughs) So I step on the first step, and I step on the second step, and I step... Fuck this, I'm running. I run up the steps. (laughs) And I get out in the hallway, and I'm looking around. Is there another person here? Uh, Part of me 
wanted there to be a person there so I wouldn't be alone, but another part of me said, no, fuck no, I don't want anyone to see me like this. <laughs> and, I, and I went outside, and, and then I started the stroll. Oh. I started the stroll, the long the stroll. stroll to my car, because when I parked it, it was back when there were a lot of cars everywhere, and I had arrived a little late that morning, so, so I had to park it down the street. It was the autumn, which is the best time of year. Best time of year. But it's also when you get all the traditional... Oh, yeah. And the shadows are different. And everything is different. And you've got the, the dry leaves floating around. And, and of course, I, I don't know if it's obvious, but I've got a little bit of an overactive imagination. <laughs> I, uh... I, uh I got all the way to the car, and I got in the car. It was Volkswagen Beetle, '69. Loved that Ooh. car. Ooh. Anyway, so um, um, I realized, oh shit! I have to go get my tuba. It was a, s- a Sunday. The schedule, schedule at the animal hospital for weekends was we would see clients up front. There were two of the attendants, receptionists, and two attendants. Um, close about five o'clock. We do end-of-day treatments with the doctor. The receptionist leaves. Doctor leaves, and then we finish um, cleaning the place up and getting ourselves out. Sunday, there were no... It was only the doctor and the two attendants. And we were usually out of there by 12 or 1. Um, so we had... Uh, doctor had come in. We did the treatments and all that. Uh, and then the doctor left. So it was just me and my friend Jay. And... Um, I had told him... Mike's experience with the, the with Ward B uh, and the the specter that evidently walked right through me that I didn't see. Uh, that might be another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so he knew about it, and he had seen something. He had heard unexplained noises upstairs. Now, upstairs was not used for anything but storage. We didn't go up there on a regular basis. We didn't... There was a... The the way to get up there was the stairwell, the dark stairwell that was in our utility room that we did just about all of our work in. Yeah. And you could look up that stairwell and it would just go up into darkness. Which is a really great thing to have in the room wherein you work all the time, you know? Right? <laughs> and, uh... That was yes. <laughs> Upstairs, you would go up the stairs, and then you'd be in this long hallway with no doors on it except at either end and one going off to the side. Most of it was these cabinets that were built in, into the walls. You know, and if you have an overactive imagination, all of those cabinets have things waiting for you to walk past. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> at the at the end of, of the long hallway was an apartment, an old apartment that had been there and just not used in decades, 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 decades. <laughs> at the other end was another room that had not been used for anything except storage for decades, decades, decades. <laughs> and then there was another room that was off to the side over the wing over Seaward on the first floor. Uh, yeah. Same thing. Oh, it was it was a big building. It was a, a big building. The whole upper floor was actually really cool because it, it was built back in the twenties or the tens, and it was it was just awesome up there. It was. But it was creepy as hell. It was just oh, yeah. creepy as hell. Um, anyway, in that apartment, uh, there was an old piano up there. 
that for some reason didn't have any keys. It was just the, I guess you would call them the, the piano bones that oh, the keys yeah. were on, like fingers, you know, yeah. and and the t- it was an upright, and the top was ripped off. I mean, the thing was ancient and obviously couldn't play. It, and um, well, back then, um, if they were just going to get rid of the piano, they would rip the keys off because they were made out of ivory. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. what we figured. That's what yeah. we figured that the reason they weren't there is because they were valuable yeah. ivory. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're ivory, so of course they're expensive. Yeah. So the poor thing was just sitting up there, a, a derelict. It was a derelict piano. Um, Jay and I were getting ready to feed all the animals. We were getting all the prescription diets right and all that, and we had all the, you know, we had our little system there. And suddenly, I hear piano music, like really echoey, like far off. It was almost like a, a phonograph playing, an old Ooh, phonograph playing. yeah. And it was coming from upstairs, and it was a piano. And I'm thinking, oh my god, am I fucking going crazy? And I look <laughs> over at Jay, and he's looking at me like, he hears the same thing. And we realize, okay, we're both hearing this. And we confirm this. Are you hearing that? Yes, I fucking am hearing that. <laughs> and we look up the dark stairway. And we looked back at each other, and I think we repeated that five or six times, looking up the dark stairway, <laughs> and then looking back at each other, waiting for one of us to go, do you want to go up there? <laughs> well, it was Jay who said it. I'm, I'm a little ashamed it wasn't me, because I'd have said it in a, in a brilliant baritone. He said it in a tenor voice, and it just it didn't have the same effect. But, uh, missed opportunity. <laughs> I, yes, completely missed opportunity. I got better, though. <laughs> so he asked me, Do you want to go up there? <laughs> and, you know, in my head, it's like, No, no, no. Yes, I do. <laughs> And so we both went up there. We walk up. I, I was in the lead because I was stupid enough to step on the steps first. Um, <laughs> and we're walking up these dark steps. And we get to the top and we open the door. And the volume of the music doesn't change. It's still Ooh. the very same volume. We looked down that long hallway with all those doors, all those cabinet doors, all along it. And we still hear the music. It's still echoey, tinny, like it's playing on a Victrola. And the volume didn't change from our being downstairs. It was still at the same volume level. And we could still both hear it. So we start walking down the hallway. And you know, I'm sure this was more what was going on in our minds than what was physically happening, but it was a long walk. It was like three times the walk under normal circumstances the hall would take. Uh, But when we finally got to the door, this was in the middle of summer, so it was very hot up there. We're sweating our asses off as we're walking down this hall, but we feel compelled to follow the music. And we get to the end of the hallway. We look at each other and go, okay, we're going to do this. I don't know why. We're dumbasses, but we're going to do this. And we open the door, and it stops immediately. The music stops immediately. Look over at the piano. It looks like it always does. Dust covered, unused, neglected, sad, forlorn. Uh, but it's cold in there. 
like an air conditioner was on. There was no air conditioner up there. There was no air conditioning duct going in there. It was an ancient room. It was in the middle of summer, and the hallway was hot as hell. But it was a cool, I don't know, 72 (laughs) in that room. He and I just looked at each other. I was the first one up those steps. I ran over top of him. I was the first one down those steps. (laughs) And he's like, yep, uh, nope, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the presence of mind to, he had the presence of mind to shut the door behind him when he got to the top of the steps because we couldn't have left that open. We both got down in the, in the, uh, in the utility room. We looked at each other and we decided we're not telling anybody at all about this. We will never hear the end of it. Like, I do not want to be committed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We would never, uh, it, so we fed the animals, we took care of the trash, we mopped the floors, and we got the fuck out of there. It was yep, We were right, done. Exactly. We were so done. Yep. <sighs> Man. Wow. The fire has burned down to embers, and the stars twinkle in the cold air overhead. It's time to return home with the memories of ghostly frights clear in our minds. We'd like to thank our guest storytellers for joining us, so thank mm-hmm. you to Brad, Bubba, Emily, and Matt. And we can't wait to do this again. And in the meantime, we are your campfire hosts, Heather and Tony. Yep. Please join us on Facebook, Insta, and Patreon. Mm-hmm. For those who celebrate it, happy Samhain. But happy Halloween to all. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Is your mouth full of marshmallow? No, it's full of chocolate. Well, at least you're in the spirit of things. Yeah. The chocolate-covered coffee caramel spirit. (laughs) I'm going to be up all night. That's okay. We'll probably have all-night trick-or-treaters. Yeah, well, they can have them, too. I'll send them back to their parents. (laughs) 